Welcome back, Cracked fans, to another edition of the Cracked Interviews podcast. I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. Happy to say I have officially kicked Dalton off the pod. You won't have to suffer through those types of interview questions anymore. I have taken the reins, and I am ready to steer the ship you know, onwards. So with that, I am so happy to bring in our guest today, You know, it's not often we get a guy who has succeeded the junior level, college level, and coaching level, and we get to explore all aspects of those things tennis-wise, really the tennis trifecta. So I am so happy to bring on the 1996 Boys 18s Kalamazoo quarterfinalist, the two-time University of Texas All-American, and current head coach of the Oklahoma men's tennis team, Coach Nick Crowell. Coach, thank you for coming on the Cracked Interviews podcast. Hey, thanks thanks for having me. Excited to be here. Just a quick frame of reference for you. In 1996, I turned one years old. So <laughs> yeah, we'll hope to uh, you know explore that added perspective because I'm sure you can teach me a lot of things. Well, we'll see, right? <laughs> Absolutely. Well, let, then let's get right into it. I know you grew up in Texas. Obviously, Texas, one of the tennis powerhouses perennially in terms of developing talent just because, you know, it's one of the few states you can play outdoors all year. Can you talk about, you know, your time in the juniors, how you got into the game, what it was like growing up for you training? Yeah, um, I grew up in West Texas, in Amarillo. Uh, It's kind of, it's pretty far from most of the big cities in Texas. And so um, my dad was my coach. He was the uh, director of tennis at a country club in Amarillo called the Amarillo country club and just grew up, you know, from a very young age, going to the club with him. And, um, my dad got me into tournaments pretty young, started playing, uh, competitive, competitively at like six, seven years old and, um, started traveling, traveling the country at, uh, or traveling in Texas at age seven. And then we started playing nationals at, at age nine years old and, uh, being in Amarillo, you know, you really have to travel pretty far to get anywhere. So our closest tournament was Dallas, which was like six or seven hour drive. Um, so we spent a lot of time in the car on the road. And as we got a little older, we, we started flying some places. But uh, yeah, you know, out in West Texas, you got to got to learn to be tough and play in the wind. And 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 it actually sometimes in the cold, um, it's a little different than being than down and being in like Austin or Houston and stuff like that. When you say the cold, so I grew up in Michigan, and to me, you know, that cold means you're indoors. For you, is it you guys could play outdoors all year round? No, we actually played indoors uh, in Amarillo quite a bit, actually. We had four indoor courts at my dad's club. Um, you know, we were we were playing outdoors as much as possible, but in the winter months from, from you know, mid-November to probably – you know, end of January, February, we were mostly indoors. And I remember a lot of cold mornings, uh, you know, getting up and, and, uh, and, you know, trudging, trudging through the snow, it snows a lot in Amarillo. So, uh, people really don't know that, but it, you get a lot of, uh, you get a lot of snow coming off the the mountains of New Mexico. Some of my favorite training sessions involve training in a tennis bubble that was freezing because it's outdoors and it's surrounded in snow. It builds character. It's half the fun. It does. It does. We had this, we, you know, there's some pictures of us 
uh, shoveling snow and all that kind of stuff to play tennis. But, but yeah, you know, junior tennis was a great experience and, and, uh, met a lot of great people in Texas, but yeah, Texas, Texas was a great place growing up, a lot of competition and, and a lot of great tournaments. No, I love it. And as I mentioned to you earlier, I, I've done some research before this podcast. You have a lot of fun results uh, in your career that we could explore. And I'll try and weave those results and ask you about them as I segue between topics. But you, you talk about starting to travel uh, to nationals at the age of nine. I want to take our listeners back to the 1993 Boys 16s Kalamazoo, where an unseeded Nick Crowell meets up in the second round with 11 seed Bob. Bob Bryan and takes him out six two six one. Um, one, I would talk about that win to this day. Uh, how how do you not? But two, you know, traveling to Kalamazoo at that point, did you know college tennis was going to be your pathway, or did you still think maybe I'm exploring the pros? Yeah, you know, at that age, um, you know, I think that must. I think that was first year sixteen, so we were probably fifteen years old. Um, you know, I. I I always wanted to play college tennis at that point. However, you know, you always, you're always hoping that things are going to turn out and maybe you turn pro, uh, right after juniors. Um, I grew, I grew up, uh, from age nine when I was traveling to nationals at nine years old, the Bryan brothers were at those same tournaments. So we, we grew up together, uh, traveling a lot with like us national team stuff. And, and so, you know, that was a great, that was a fun time for us and fun match, but, uh, no, I mean, yeah, definitely wanted to play professionally, but I also knew college tennis was most likely going to be the route. I have to ask, young Bob, young Mike on the single circuit, what was that looking like? Well, I mean, those guys, those guys were coming out of Southern Cal, um, and and there was another. There were a lot of great players coming from Southern Cal at that time. Another guy named Kevin Kim, um, who played a long time on the on the circuit, but it seemed like those three guys were really dominating. Um, you know, you had the lefty righty. Those guys were just, to- just kind of like they are now, just really good guys on the junior circuit. Um, everyone liked them. They were really good. And obviously, they were winning everything in doubles, but they were also, you know, they were also always top four, four or five um, in the country in singles, all the way from 12s all the way through 18s. Yeah, and it's funny you mentioned the name Kevin Kim. Really, your nemesis at Kalamazoo takes you on the quarterfinals of both the 16s and the 18s. Yes, thanks for bringing that up. Yeah, not 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 trying to rub it. I'm just saying, you know, you talk about that generation. You're obviously up. You see your name right alongside those guys. You mentioned all of them going uh, on to college. You know that whole group. I'm curious. You've done the recruiting process as a player. Uh, you know, you've done the recruiting process now as a coach. What 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 do you think you went through? At, what experiences that you went through as a player have helped guide your message as you're recruiting as a coach? Uh, that's, a, that's a good question. I mean, you know, when when I was getting recruited um, out of out of Amarillo, um, I, I actually didn't go through the whole entire recruiting process like maybe some of the guys did. Um, I, uh, I didn't actually take any of my, I didn't actually take any of my visits. And so I think that's kind of one of the things that I would tell junior players now is, yeah, you, you need to take, you need to take your visits. Um, I don't know if people always need to take five, uh, because sometimes I think guys get a little bit, can get a little bit confused or, or, you know, in that decision-making process, but I always feel like taking somewhere between three, three to four visits is really good for the junior players. And, 
you know, if they've got another school in there that they really want to see, take, take the fifth. And, um, but you know, that, I think that's something that I wish I would have done. Uh, when I was 17, uh, I decided very, very early to go to the university of Texas. Um, but I would say now looking back on it, that would be one thing that I would have done a little bit different. And I just would have gone and like explored a few, a few more of my options and, and looked at a few more places. Well, uh, the last thing I want to talk about in terms of the junior perspective, and I agree with all of your points there. Um, I, I want to ask, you know, I talk about Kalamazoo and I stress this. I had the chance to go there uh, and cover the event a little bit this year. I know that event is a center stage for coaches. You know, everyone's flying in. But in terms of helping players, you know, not only get the exposure they want, but you know, reaching out to coaches like you to show themselves, what do you think is the best path for a player to do that now to, to get in front of these coaches and stuff like that. Is that what you Yeah. Mean? No, I, I think Kalamazoo in, in the United States is for sure uh, the pinnacle uh, for junior tennis. I think, you know, basically you look around um, almost every coach, every co- college now uh, is sending almost both of their coaches. So um, head coach and assistant coach, you know, and now what's happened in the recruiting process is you're recruiting for so many different years. So uh, sometimes you're recruiting for three or four years at one time. And so you're looking at kids that are first year, second year, 16s, but you're also, you might be recruiting for someone for the current year, January, and you're looking for a, for a, a guy there for that year as well. So, you know, you, you need to have both coaches there. And if you're a junior player and you, and you're really serious about playing college tennis, I think that's the best place to, to go and and really be seen by all of these guys because everybody's there. Yeah, and you talk about being seen. Obviously, you caught the eyes of the Texas coaching staff. You go on to work with uh, Texas assistant and now Florida State head coach Dwayne Holquist uh, throughout your career. What was it that drew you to Texas as this is the place I want to play? You know, um, for me, when I was growing up, I was really close with a lot of the guys that were going to Texas and not even the guys that I was maybe even going to play on the same team with, but I really looked up to some of the players that had gone there before me. Like Chad Clark was out of Texas. He was the number one player, but he ended up, he ended up going there. He left after his junior year, but I really looked up to Chad. I really looked up to Trey Phillips, um, even guys before that. And there was just a long line of Texas players that were going on to play there. And, and so you know, at, at that time, I think in the 90s, facilities and, and all of that kind of stuff, it wasn't like it is now. Um, and, and so I think you were going, you were wanting to go and play with guys that you knew. And, and they, had a, they had a couple good recruiting classes before me. And then also uh, the head coach, uh, Dave Snyder, was r- really well respected and uh, just was a really good person and connected with him. And then obviously Coach Dwayne and I um, have had a long running uh, relationship on on the tennis court off the court uh friends and so you know and he's still a a great friend of mine and mentor yeah and you know in terms of your own career at texas you had you know as as good as one could hope for your two-time all-american in doubles your freshman year team a, a sophomore year team and junior year team win big 12 championships your freshman and junior team both win uh the big 12 tournament as well you know, I, I like to ask questions. It puts you in an uncomfortable position. The 97 team plays the 99 team. Who takes home the title? 
97 versus 99. That's that's a great that's a really great question. That 97 team, uh, we were like really young, uh, feisty, feisty. Um, you know, BJ Stearns uh, was kind of the leader of that team. He was a junior at that time. Um, you know, I thought he did a great job that way. Uh, we had a guy named Paul Martin from England. Who was a who was a sophomore? Jack Brazington was on that team. I don't know if you if you know who Jack is, but Jack ended up qualifying for five straight Grand Slams in a row. He played Andy Roddick in the third round of the U.S. Open. Um, he played number four. So you know, all those guys were basically on on all those teams except for BJ. Um, we had a great player in '99 who added. Uh, his name was Brandon Hawk. Brandon was you know winning Kalamazoo in doubles and top four or five player. Man, I, th- I think it's a four-three one way or the other. Um, you know, I, I'd probably have to say that that '99 team was maybe maybe a little more seasoned. Um, we ended up losing to Georgia that year in the round of 16, and they went on to win the tournament. Uh, they were they were it was at Georgia, and they were seated a little bit lower that year. You you probably have it in front of you. They might have been like the ninth or tenth. <laughs> They might have been like the ninth or tenth seed that year, and they knocked us out in the round of 16. But I, but I actually think that team uh, might have might have beaten the 97 team. So I, I don't have seedings, unfortunately. I do have you guys on a 4-0 loss in the round of 16 to Georgia. Also, the 97 team though lost round of 16, 4-0, I believe, to Stanford. Yeah, quarterfinal, quarterfinal. Oh, quarterfinal. Excuse me. And that team had two Bryan, so I imagine both are tough outs. Both teams were tough outs. That Stanford team was definitely better. They had uh, Paul Goldstein playing four. Oh. Uh, Brian, they had Ryan Walters uh, up in the top of the lineup, who who won the All American as a freshman, was a top uh, was a top college player out of Stanford. And they had uh, they had Jeff Abrams and playing down there really low at six, who was who was an unbelievable player. Um, but yeah, that that team was really good with the Bryans and Goldstein and Walters. So. I'm getting yelled at from our producer. He's he's saying don't spend too much time on the history. No one knows these players. Uh, but I love this tennis history. I think college tennis is so underrated in terms of how many guys have gone through that process. And the way I'm going to transition this into a question about your coaching career. So having played four years of high-level college tennis, you talk about three round of 16s and a quarterfinals. How have those experiences prepared you as a coach to coach your players through similar scenarios? Well, you know what they're going, you know what they're going through, uh, heading into those tournaments, you know, the pressure that they're feeling. Um, and I think just being able to sit on the sideline with those guys during matches, trying to kind of calm their nerves, help them through those situations, but also in the, in the preparation, you know, when you're playing those NCAA tournaments, it's always really hot and, you know, you're, you're, you're actually thinking about that months in advance and, and how you're going to prepare your team uh, to win in May. And that that's kind of what I'm always thinking about is how, how are we going to be best, uh, best ready to win in May? And, 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 you know, we're thinking about that right now every day in practice. So um, I think that's where it kind of really helps you because, you know, you know, the feeling of being on the court uh, in those moments. And you also know the, the, the extreme conditions and the pressure. 
Yeah, and you, you know, you talk about that pressure as well. I, I, in reading about you in interviews, one of the things I believe it was Spencer Papa praised was your level-headedness, the fact that you are able to remain calm in these moments. You know, I had the experience of watching my little brother in the state finals this weekend, and I lost my voice because I was shouting. I just I couldn't do it. How do you manage to keep a level head, or at the very least, present that level head to your players? Yeah, you know, I think it's really, I think it's really important when they look over that they see that they see that you're confident and that you're that you're not panicking and that you're calm. Um, I, w- I think I would also be considered pretty passionate and energetic. So when we're, you know, when we're in these moments, you know, I like to play every point with our guys, and and when they win, you know, showing them that energy and the pump, um, and I just feel like that really carries the team forward with with energy. Uh, but you know, when we're talking to them on the sideline, it's about being calm and, and pointing out, uh, you know, different things that they can do, do to help them win. And, and the tennis, being a tennis coach at this level is, it's also being like, it's being a part psychologist on the, on those, on the sidelines and just trying to, you know, the frame of mind that they, when they walk on the court is, is so important. And that's, that's really what we're trying to work on on a daily basis. And then just getting our guys in the right frame of mind to play. To transition into your coaching career, I know after your time, uh, you did play a little bit on the pro circuit, uh, top 400 in doubles, I believe top 850 in singles. Uh, But then, you know, in 2004, your former assistant says, hey, the assistant coaching job at Florida State is open. I I don't know if he said, I I want you to take it. Maybe you had to beg, you know, maybe it was the other way around. Uh, But did you think from the get-go, I want to get into college coaching? And that was always the end path? Yeah, you know, my my path to playing pro tennis was a little bit different right out of college I ended up having a a heart surgery I ended up getting a pacemaker put in and I basically kind of took about a two-year hiatus from playing tennis um and it was a heart heart condition and 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 then during that two-year period I started coaching and I really enjoyed coaching especially the higher level junior players but then I went out there and started to play professionally again and I played for about nine or 10 months and, and kind of, you know, got my feet wet there and ended up getting injured tore tour tendon in my left wrist. And at that time, uh, Dwayne, Dwayne gave me a call and just said, Hey, you know, our, our assistant coach is, is leaving for another job. And, you know, I'm looking, it was mid season. And so I actually started at Florida state, like basically on spring break trip. So, um, <laughs> it was actually kind of an interesting transition and time period for me because I was coming off the tour, but, I was taking a job and getting into a team that I was already really established and, you know, was midway through their season. So, you know, they just, it just kind of like threw me into the, the, to the deep end right away. And to say at that moment, um, yeah, I, I really, I really thought college tennis was an area that I wanted to pursue. Um, you know, I didn't, I didn't know I would stay at Florida state as long as I did. Um, but, you know, thankfully that I did. And, you know, led me here to Oklahoma. Yeah. And we, you know, I do of course want to focus about your time at Oklahoma. Just one quick question about your time at Florida state. Obviously you were a part of helping that program rise to the point where now it's, you know, a perennial top 40 team. You're always going to see them round of 32 sweet 16. And your instance, you guys made a couple of quarterfinals as well. How did that experience you know, what did you take away from that that helped you prepare to be a head coach and 
you know, do you think there was a reason you stayed at Florida State so long as opposed to jumping on an earlier offer, which I'm sure there had to be? Yeah, you know, um, there's there's multiple reasons, but um, no, I, I think Dwayne, when I first started there, you know, he, he threw me in, like I said, into the deep end really quickly. Uh, but as as we were, as I was there longer, we just we he started giving me more and more responsibility, and I think that really uh, helped me into the transition here at Oklahoma. Um, in terms of like really dealing with all aspects of our program um, and, and knowing the ins and outs of that program at Florida state um, offering guys scholarships, you know, working equivalencies, you know, fundraising, just all the different, all the different things you're kind of dealing with, not only on court and recruiting, but all the ins and outs. Um, you know, early on, I would have probably said I would have stayed at Florida state for three to five years. Um, you know, then I, you, you know, you end up, uh, I, I got married and we had three kids and before you know it, you're on your eight or nine. And, and, uh, <laughs> and then, and then at that point, you know, you're at a year, year, year number 10, we started to, uh, you know, start to really consider, uh, m- moving on and, and looking for big head coaching jobs. And really it was just about finding the right, kind of the right fit where we want it to be and and that would be good for our family but this one this one turned out good so yeah well it's perfect that you bring up the family that was going to be my transition question i i know you have three kids if i remember i am also from a family of three kids so that's the go-to number um as you're transitioning to the head coaching role and before we get into that what is that transition like you know moving your family to a new place i imagine there's had to have been some fun some horror stories well, you know, my wife was from Tallahassee and she lived there for 33 years of her life, the first 33 <laughs> years. So that was a definite, definite, um, interesting conversation, when, <laughs> but, uh, we knew we, we knew we wanted to come to Oklahoma and she was a hundred percent on board the whole way, you know, moving here was crazy, you know, piling everyone in the car and the dog and, you know, driving across the country a couple of times and making this happen. Um, but no, family is so important and, you know, our, our family's transitioning really well here now in Norman and kids are, kids are into sports and, you know, everybody's having, having a good time. Yeah. And in terms of your transition to the head coach, you know, you come into a Sooners team, you know, who comes up, I believe, back-to-back national finals appearances, obviously losing a coach like John Roddick, who had recruited all of those guys. But they were a veteran team. You had returners. You had Alex Scalia. You had Andrew Harris, Spencer Papa. You know, what was your first move in terms of getting those guys on the same page as you, getting in contact with them, and just building a culture from there? Yeah, it was an interesting it was an interesting uh, transition because when I walked when I walked in the door, we really ha- we only had four players on the team. So, but he, but those four players were really were really really good and like you said, really experienced. And so the first line of business was filling out the roster with at least trying to find four more players to have eight guys. And uh, so that that's what we went to work on right away. But I also knew three of those four players that we inherited were seniors. So the following year, I only had one guy guaranteed on the team, and that was Spencer Papa. So, you know, we were looking at basically bringing in nine or ten guys over in over the course of one year to really rebuild, to try to rebuild quickly. And uh, I wouldn't even use the we never we never used the word rebuild, just built. We just called said it was building. And uh, so that was that was number one. Um, number two, 
you know, as soon as I got the job, I reached out to all the players on the team and they were just so welcoming. I mean, those guys were like unbelievably respectful and um, they, they had such admiration and respect for John and what he had done here. And, uh, but those guys were, those guys were just unbelievably first class when I got here. And Spencer Papa was actually the first guy that I was able to meet on our team. Um, I came to Norman right away and he and I had a, he and I had a meeting and a couple hour meeting in the locker room. And from that, from that point on, you know, we've been, we've been clicking ever since. Yeah. And, you know, in an article in the OU daily, uh, Spencer talked about that transition a little bit. And, you know, while everyone stressed how much they respected John and loved him as a coach, they did say, you know, the one di- or one difference between the two of you is, you know, you kind of pushed them a little bit differently. You were really hard on them in certain training sessions, and then you'd ease up before matches. You were constantly changing what they were doing at practice. And I'm just curious, as a coach, how do you know? Why is that your approach? Is that your approach, first of all? And you know, why do you think that's the right way to go about it? Yeah, you know, for me, I, re- I remember being a player in college, and I remember what it was like day in and day out, and you know, we, we like to change things up. Um, you know, we've got, we've got our go-to practices and we've got our go-to systems that we go to when, when, uh, on certain days. And, but, uh, you know, keeping the guys on their toes a little bit and, um, you know, we like to mix it. Sometimes we'll have, um, you know, full team practice where everyone's there. Sometimes we'll have split team practices. Sometimes we split the whole practice into three groups and one coach is taking certain guys and, another coach is taking other guys. And, and so we, you know, we're always mixing it around like that just to, to make it where there's, there's not, not as much monotony uh, and, and where guys are continuing to stay hungry. And, you know, we work a lot of individual work here. And, and I think that's important for these guys too, because I also remember in juniors, you know, when you're a junior player coming into college, you've, you've always had your own coach and everything's always been individual. And now you're, thrown into a team environment. And I think sometimes these guys still need that individual work where they're still getting that, that time to spend one-on-one with a coach. Yeah. And a a quick, I'm just curious about your perspective. You know, uh, Oklahoma teams known for aggressive play, known for high quality doubles play. Um, I happen to be of the belief I played a lot of doubles. You've got to serve in volley. You just have to do it. Are you on that train with me? I'm on I am on that train. However, it seems to me the longer we keep going in this, more and more juniors coming into college like to serve and stay back. And so it's horrible. We, yeah, we it is. I mean, and we we're pushing that every day in practice. Um, you know, there's there's sometimes in practice where we're we're making our guys serve in volley every single time in the matches and, and in the drills and then but then there's also times when we're we're working on serving and staying back and getting in these uh, one up one back rallies and, and, and how you have to maneuver out of those situations and look to get two up at the net or, or when to go down the line and when to poach. I mean, the, the doubles uh, there's so many more ways to play it now uh, with the one up one back or two back than before. I felt like when I was playing, everyone was serving and balling. It was pretty, it was pretty simple. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I don't think serves and volleys are simple. It's um. It, it it requires proper execution. I'm just putting a spin on it. I'm a doubles player. You know, I got I have to defend my turf. Um, but in in terms of one other just opinion aspect, uh, you talk about 
the scoring changes in college tennis and how, you know, when you played, it was two out of three sets for maybe, I know for sure singles. I had a coach who always said, it used to be two out of three sets in doubles too. And, you know, that's great, but we don't want to be there for seven hours. Um, In terms of the scoring changes, it seems to have settled on two out of three sets, no ad scoring, one set of no ad and the doubles for now. What do you think about that scoring change and has it changed the way you coach your kids? Yeah, I mean, I I would say it has a little bit. Um, You know, we talk a lot about how you play the big points and and how you play the deuce point and um, I'm not going to give away all of our secrets, but yeah, I mean, we, we, we're stressing that a lot in practice and, and, you know, what, what are the go-to plays for each individual and, you know, trying to work your best point on those times. Um, you know, drills that we do in practice are oftentimes, uh, built around that a little bit. The other thing I would say, you know, it, this, the shortened format has taken away a little bit of the, of the fitness, which I don't like. Um, I, I feel like some of the matches don't go as long now. And so the fitness aspect has been, been taken out. Um, not, not fully, but, um, you know, we still train like we're going to be out there for four hours. So we're still pushing fitness every day and, you know, you still have to be as fit as possible, but I think sometimes, you know, the matches are shortened up and, and some, sometimes some people can get away with not being as fit. In light of that answer, uh, quick take on a recent tennis, not scandal, but headline, I guess. Wimbledon's taking the five set to seven six in the third, or sorry, to twelve all in the third. They're playing a tiebreaker. Then, you know, there's they, been a lot of talk. Are they switching it to that? Yeah, they it just came out. That's what they're switching to now at twelve all. It, it's interesting. But so there's that. There's talk of maybe majors should be two out of three sets, not three out of five. What's your take on that? You know, I feel like in those majors, I, I think they should keep three out of five for sure. Um, you know, I feel like with that 12, with the, you know, I hadn't heard that yet, the at t- playing the tiebreaker at 12 all. Um, you know, I, it's, I guess that's kind of like a compromise, I guess, instead of just going tiebreaker at six all, they're like, okay, let's, let's kind of play it out. But then once it gets too far, let's just play a breaker. Um, <laughs> so, you know, I, I kind of feel like, maybe that's a good compromise for that tournament because they're trying to keep the tradition at Wimbledon, but at least people know now there's going to be a finish line <laughs> and yeah. uh, we're, we're closing in on a finish line rather than who knows, 26, 28 or whatever. So, yeah. So just so just so listeners know, October 21st, that's this Sunday, BBC report. Uh, it is now they're playing a tiebreaker 12 all in the final set. That's always fun to break a little news. So hopefully listeners to that will now be aware of that news. So yeah, thank you for being a part of that. Um, in terms of, you know, I, I do have a little bit of a different take. I was at the Laver Cup. I don't know if you got to go to that event. But no, but I, I watched a little bit. The third set, 10-point breaker, it's thrilling. And so if you were like, play three out of five sets, but the fifth set's just a 10-point breaker, I could like that. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, that that, that really ma- – that, that's going to make for an exciting finish in a lot of college matches if they ever went to that. Um, <laughs> yeah, good transition. I love it. Yeah, I, I feel like that would be like a – an exciting way to end a lot of these college matches. Um, you know, I think college tennis is trying to move towards getting more and more college matches on TV. And that would probably be a good way to create more excitement that way. So, 
Yeah, and but that being said, there is something to the college atmosphere as is. When you have a home crowd rocking in a college tennis match, just given how small the or just you know it's not a hundred thousand stadium like Texas, Oklahoma football, Michigan football, but it is all two thousand people at most squeezed next to each other, and it's just that intimate thrill. You're on top of the players. Um, you know, how do you make sure that aspect of tennis is continues to be stressed? Because there is something about those crowds. No, I, I think I think um, obviously the more fans we can get to matches, the the greater the environment, the atmosphere. The players love it. You know, college tennis is one of a kind. I mean, you get out there and you've got six courts and you've got six guys, you know, pumping up and screaming. You got the fans going crazy, but. I think more and more people would like would love college tennis if we could just get more and more people to come to the matches. Because you look up in the stands at our matches and even at other places, you see this the same people always come back. And it's 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 a great we've got a great product. We've just got to get more and more uh, more and more people into the seats, and then I feel like those people would come back. And you know, the more excitement you can create, the better. And you know, I think these. I think the fans like the fact in college tennis you don't have to sit on your hands and and be quiet. You know, you, you can yell and scream and and really get after it. Absolutely, and you talk about that atmosphere. I imagine one of the more thrilling matches, you know, just in general to be a part of was when you were watching uh, Spencer Papa and Andrew Harris take home the first individual title in Oklahoma tennis history when they won the NCAA doubles title a few years ago in Georgia. Of course, the bonus on top of that is they were playing the number one ranked Georgia team at home in the final. Uh, can you tell us, you know, what was that environment like? What is it like coaching a player through that match, and just how do you absorb that scene? That was an, number one. That was an amazing day uh, for Oklahoma tennis and for Spencer and Andrew, and and uh, and even for me. I mean, that that was a great moment in my career. You know, stands out at the top. Um, you know, even though that wasn't a team match, uh, you're representing the university there, and and you know. You know, going into that match, I mean, that was such a tough tournament. You know, we were unseated and, you know, we had to beat the number one seeds uh, in the final, but we also had to take out, you know, Wake Forest team in the semifinal, UCLA in the quarterfinal, uh, a good Arkansas team in the round of 16 with Red Licky and Salazar. And, you know, that was just an unbelievable experience. I think going into the final, uh, our guys were obviously a little a little more nervous and, and they had a pretty – a pretty good crowd. I mean, it wasn't like their team matches, but you know, there was, you know, probably four or 500 people up in the crowd. And I think we had about eight or 10 sooner fans. And so, you know, it was, we felt the we felt the environment and, and the people against us. And we actually got off to a pretty slow start. Um, we got down six, two, two Oh, uh, down a break in the second. And, you know, the guys came over, they kind of snuck out a hold to make it two one. And, um, on the changeover, we, we basically kind of got on them a little bit and said they needed to, they needed to really start firing up and get a lot more energetic out there. And I don't know if you've ever seen any of the videos, but, um, from the set, from that point on, Spencer and Andrew caught fire and they didn't stop. I mean, they, they basically pumped up the whole time. And before we knew it, we, we had won six straight games. We were up six, two, and we were up nine, four in the tiebreaker and ended up ended up ending it out 10, uh, 10, six. And that third set breaker but uh yeah amazing moment those guys stepped up and and i think for them uh one one of the things that we talked about 
from day one in our first team meeting when I got the job at Oklahoma was to win a national title this the first year. And I said, whether it's a team, a singles or, or a doubles, the goal is to win one. And I said, if we don't get the team, we, we have to have guys step up and we're going to go for singles or doubles. And we actually, we also had Alex Galea that year make the quarterfinals. Um, and Alex was a great player here, played number three that year, took out Petros in the round of 16 and got beat by Tom Fawcett, who was playing great in the quarters. But he made a great run there. And those guys really bought in to what we were talking about, trying to finish the year strong and, and bring home the first national title to Oklahoma. And Spencer and Andrew did it. So you give it, you got to give the hats off to them. Absolutely. Look, some of my favorite matches in college tennis history. The, it was the year uh, I believe Virginia knocked out Baylor and then knocked out Oklahoma in the in the final. That's a great one. The year USC Oklahoma, another great one. Um, so I, you know, to set those standards from the beginning, that speaks to the culture you're trying to set. And you go 17 and 11 in your first year, make the round of 16. You know, this past year you went 20 and six. Obviously, you guys lose Spencer before the year with injury. You know, now that it's year three, do you, do you think the culture is where you want it to be? You know, are you happy with the state of the program? What should we be looking for this year? Well, you know, you know, you know, you, last year's team, um, we basically had seven new players and. You know, when you're going into the season, you think you've got Spencer with you. And when, when he went down in December with the, the ACL injury, you know, I think a lot of people really questioned what was going to happen. And, you know, in our first team meeting in January, Spencer Spencer wasn't there. And, you know, he was nursing his knee at home in Edmond. And, and we talked and, and we basically said, uh, guys, this is, this is the only time we're going to talk about this the whole year, not having Spencer. So let's talk about it and let's get all the questions out. And I said, it's just going to be, this is going to be a, a different team than we thought we were going to have, but it doesn't mean, it doesn't mean we're going to drop off. And I said, it just means other guys are going to have to step up. And, and we had that. I mean, Alex Bakshi was a trans transfer from Texas A&M and came in and played number one for us and became big 12 player of the year. And we had a rookie Jake Van Inberg come in, started the year at four and really stepped up both of those guys. I think their record on the year was 15 and three and, uh, you know, Fran Calvo from Spain had a great, great year. So, you know, the expectation uh, didn't didn't go down last year. It's this we had to ra- try to raise the standard and raise the bar. Now we've got Spencer back. Um, we've added a couple good freshmen. And, uh, you know, we feel like on paper, yeah, we, we can be even a better team. But we also know that there's a lot of work to be done. And and we've got to play that we've got to play good and we've got to play strong and we've got to keep getting better. So, you know, that's our mentality every day. Um, there's, there's like, there's really is no ex that there's just a standard at Oklahoma that we're trying to, to live up to. And, and that's what we're, that's what we're working on every day. I love to hear it. Well then, you know, again, we want to be conscious of your time. So only a few more questions and I, I want to end with a rapid fire so our fans can get, you know, some fun questions your way. But again, you talk about that 2018-19 team. Um, so many young guys coming back for their second season. And of course you get Spencer to return. If, for you guys, is it, is it about setting tangible goals from the beginning? You know, we want a Big 12 championship. We want to host an NCAA regional. Or is it more taking it, you know, match by match and having those goals come to you with the heart? You know, how do you stress that? Yeah, you know, I think I think there's always expectation uh, at, o, at OU, just in our whole entire athletic department, to, to compete and win 
Big 12 championships and compete and, and vie for national championships. And so that standard's been set uh, in, in our entire athletic department. If you look at uh, gymnastics, golf, softball, football, you know, even basketball making final four a couple years ago, you know, I think there's just this expectation. And so our guys know that uh, we don't talk, we don't talk about uh, winning big 12, or we don't just talk about that on a daily basis, but you know, that, that standard is there. And, and, but what we just try to talk about every day is just try to win the day. Like, did we win, did we win the day today? Did we practice good? Did we get better? And uh, you know, it, you know, that's how we assess our progress. And, you know, we all know what we want to accomplish here and, and the guys know we, you know, we've got some things written down, but it's not like we're, we're talking about those things every day. We're just talking about the process. I love it. Well then one final question about the 1819 Sooners. If there's one takeaway you want other teams, fans watching, just people who are, you know, being aware of these Oklahoma Sooners, what do you want that takeaway to be? You know, the one thing I want people to say about our team is we're we we we're the most competitive. We have the best competitors in the country. When they when they look at us, they see a team that fights every day and uh, comes to play and shows up every single every single day with their lunchbox, and we're going to be out there as long as it takes. Oh, I love it. Well, then let's end with a rapid fire. Again, we love to do these at the end with all of our guests. I'll ask you quick questions that should be one or two word answers. Uh, I apologize in advance if I have a follow up. Sometimes that happens, but again, these are lighthearted questions. And there is there may be one gotcha question thrown in towards the end, but I promise it's not that bad. All right. Okay, we'll start here. Favorite city in the world? Paris. Oh, I love it. Favorite meal in the world? Pizza. Favorite child? No, I'm just kidding. That one's a skip. I wouldn't do that to you. Favorite non-tennis athlete? Non-tennis athlete? Tiger Woods. Do you want to talk about his comeback? How great that title was? I'd go 30 minutes. Oh, I mean that, that we could talk all night on that, but I mean, you know, in my mind, I just, you know, you've grown, we've just grown accustomed to seeing him win and seeing him struggle so much over the last, you know, five, six years, whatever it's been. I mean, to see him come back as strong as he is, I mean, just more Testament to show how great he is. And, and I think there's going to be bigger things coming down the road. I don't know how many majors he's going to win, but hopefully he'll get a couple more. One of the sporting events I will tell my children about is I was at a family dinner. I think it was a high holiday or something, and I was at downstairs watching Tiger as he was hitting his putt to go to the tie break or to the the extra eighteen with Rocco. Uh, Rocco, uh, and they were upstairs, and the upstairs TV was three seconds ahead, so we heard them scream, and we knew he made the putt. And it was like that. That sucks. I love it when they show that on uh, Golf Channel reruns. Oh, yeah. If you had a sport – here's a fun rapid. If you had a sporting moment like that thus far in your lifetime, what would it be? Oh, man. Um, I would have to say for me it was 90, 1997 Big 12 tournament, uh, <laughs> cl- clinching the Big 12 for, for, for our team. And, and uh, you know, we, I was down a couple match points and came back and won. Oh, I love that. Well, then, favorite TV show? Breaking Bad. Oh, interesting. Not a Game of Thrones guy? Never watched it. Oh, my God. All right, I know you have a season ahead of you, but in the down month, maybe like that end of December, just binge a little. 
but no kids no kids around yeah it's a little gory um all right here's my gotcha question texas and oklahoma playing football who are you rooting for and don't lie i'll know okay oklahoma (laughs) that answer was brought to you by the oklahoma athletic department and my final question for you, obviously our name, it's, it's a play on tennis, is Cracked Rackets. The last time you cracked a racket was? <laughs> oh, man, that's, that's a good question, but there was, way too, there was probably way too many, way too <laughs> many in my career. So, um, you know, since I've, been a, since I've been coaching here at Oklahoma, I, I can say I haven't cracked one. I'll have to get uh, Coach Thorquist on the line and just make sure if there are any Florida State breaks, get him to spill the beans. Oh, I'm sure there. I'm sure there was a. I'm sure there was a few early on. <laughs> oh, I'm glad. I'm glad here. Well, Coach Corral, thank you so much for th- taking the time to come on the podcast. Uh, obviously, we will be watching the Sooners all year long, and we look forward to covering them. And you know, I reserve the right to bring you back on here in case anything when the amazing happens. Yeah, absolutely. Anytime. Just give me a call. Oh, awesome. Well, thank you very much, and take care. Good luck to you guys this season. All right. Thanks a lot. <laughs> and go Sooners. <laughs> Boomer Sooner. <laughs> I love it. Take care. Oh, 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 oh,